Lord, we are overwhelmed when we think of the fact that we are a part of a story that has been going on so long before us. We are humbled. We are amazed. We are grateful, beyond grateful. And as this building tells a story of your faithfulness, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would make us faithful. We ask that you would give us the grace to become like you, that you would lead us and guide us and change us and transform us, and that we could be found to be your faithful people who continue the story that you have been writing for a long, long time. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would allow us, that you would teach us, that you would strengthen us to be the good neighbors that we want to be to our community here on 8th and Lee. Would you allow us to know names, not just faces? Would you allow us to know stories and to have meaningful and useful purposes in our neighborhood? We want to be a part of your work of making all things new. But we need your spirit to energize us, to give us courage and discernment as we do so. And on this Easter Sunday that is April 1st, we can't think about being good neighbors without thinking of and praying for our teachers and our students who are preparing for tomorrow, which is April 2nd. Lord God, we ask that even as we have experienced making old things new in this place and in us, would you make old things new in our schools so that we may care well for our youngest and most vulnerable neighbors among us. We pray for the teachers in this place in our congregation that you would grant them wisdom and courage, that you would fill them with your love and your desire for the students that they teach. And we pray, Lord, for all those who are involved in making decisions at the Capitol and other places around our state, that you would lead them to care well for our kids. This is part of what it means, we believe, to be good neighbors. So we ask this in your name because we know that you care about these things. And as we continue in worship, we pray that you would tune our hearts to hear your voice and that as we hear your good news, we would celebrate. Thank you, God, for all we have received and all we continue to receive from your hands. We pray all of this in the name and spirit of Jesus Christ. Amen. To invite you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, we have some friends who have Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just raise your hand. 
and somebody will bring you a Bible. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation, and uh, if you don't own a Bible, you can just keep this Bible. It belongs to you. It's our gift to you. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 1 through verse 14. I I will just let you know, uh, this is a strange Easter text. We have been going through Ephesians as we've been preparing together as a congregation to move into this building. And so hopefully what, uh, what God revealed to the first hearers would be revealed to us today. So I invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word for us this morning on this Easter morning. Hear the word of the Lord from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are His dearly loved children. Live a life filled with love. Following the example of Christ, he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey Him. Don't participate in the things these people do, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of the light, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. This is the word of God for the people of God, and let us say together, thanks be to God. You, you may be seated. So if you have ever taken a philosophy class, you were probably introduced to the great thinker Plato. Plato was an ancient Greek philosopher who lived 400 years before Jesus of Nazareth. And in this class, you probably had to read about Plato's, or you had to read Plato's allegory of the cave. Essentially, this is a story that Plato tells. Uh, It's a bit of a a story or a parable where you see a conversation between his mentor, Socrates, and one of his students, Glaucon. Now, the allegory is Plato's attempt to explain the nature of reality. So, Plato's cave represents the state of most human beings, and it tells the tale of this dramatic exit out of the cave into this true source of enlightenment and understanding. So, in this parable, you have Socrates asking Glaucon to imagine a cave in which prisoners are kept. Now, I've got a picture for you up on the wall. Evan, we can leave that up for a few minutes. This is an actual drawing of the actual event. That's a, that's a joke, everybody. You can laugh in the new 8th Street Church, all right? Even at bad jokes. So, according to Socrates, each person 
has been in this cave since childhood. And each is held there in a particular manner. They're chained in the cave uh, so that their, their, their legs and their necks are immovable. And they're forced to look at a wall in front of them. Now behind them is this fire. And between the fire and the prisoners, there's this walkway where people are walking. And these people behind the prisoners are puppeteers, Socrates says, and they're just carrying objects. They cast the shadow of those objects, kind of like hand puppets or shadow puppets on a wall, which are the shape of human, humans and animal figures as well as other everyday objects. Now, these shadows on the wall are images cast, and they're flickering images, kind of like what, kind of like the shadow puppets kids do, and, and not, not only because they're, and, and since their bodies are chained, but their heads are chained as well, these prisoners presume that the images that they see on the wall, that these shadows are reality rather than just the truth, that they're shadowy representations of that which is actually real. Socrates in the allegory claimed that the images on the wall would seem so real to the people who had been sitting there from childhood that they would begin to then have conversations with one another, establishing rank or prestige, maybe even popularity or fame. They, they based on their knowledge of, of the things that came by or the order or the details of the shadows, they might even try to gain power over one another and the most prestige would be given to the one who could recall the most details about the shapes. The most prestige would be given to the one that could remember the order that they appeared or how they might be found together. Now, of course, Socrates would point out that this praise or this popularity or this prestige came in vain because these are just shadows. The images are not real. Now, I tell you that because this is an allegory or a story that little children were taught in the day. Little Greek first graders knew this story. Little children back in the day were encouraged to know the story and memorize it. And Paul, the one who wrote the letter that we read out of today, was a Roman citizen who was an expert in Greek philosophy. And Paul came, uh, it, Paul seems to, in this text, be referring to Plato's allegory of the cave. Now, certainly Socrates' point of the allegory is to say that all people live in this cave, and the realities before us are actually just shadows dancing on a wall. The things that we think bring us popularity and prestige, these are not real, Socrates says. He believed that to earn prestige or popularity while you were enslaved is an absolutely ridiculous notion. He said it's folly, and Paul agrees. Our efforts to demonstrate our power, our popularity, our prestige are stupid. Paul says, you know, greed. Using your neighbor for personal financial gain, that's like shadows on a wall. Accumulation of more stuff than what you need for security, that's a shadow on the wall. Seeking power, political power or otherwise, shadows on a wall. Wanting fame and celebrity, whatever that looks like, shadows on a wall. Sexual conquest that is cheap or violent, 
or abusive just for the sake of control and self-gratification? Paul, Paul says shadows on the wall. Now, Socrates asks this question, and I think it's a great question. He says, what if, what if the prisoners who are in that cave are able to break free? What if the chains snap and they're able to turn around and they're able to look at the fire? Certainly because this prisoner has been staring at this wall forever, the bright light would hurt his eyes. But what if, despite the pain of looking at the fire, he begins to realize that what he's been staring at all along is not real, but were only shadows of real objects that were on the walkway behind him? And then what if the prisoner was taken out of the cave and brought into the open? The disorientation would be so severe because the light of the sun would be even brighter than the fire. And Socrates says, but slowly, this one begins to realize that the shadows that are dancing on the wall are not real. And his eyes begin to open up and they begin to adjust to the new light the new reality, and the prisoner would then now be able, as he is being brought into the light, would be able to see beyond the shadows and be able to see dimensions and reflections. Maybe he would even be able to look into the water and see what he looks like. He would be able to see now for the first time those things that are real. He might even be able to see literally himself. When we read this text, I wonder if you can understand what Paul is doing. He's using the stories that were taught to children and is like Plato saying, come out of the darkness and come into the light. Listen to the words that he uses here. Once you were full of darkness, now you have light from the Lord. You were once a prisoner just watching shadows dance upon a wall. He says, live as people of the light. Living as people of the light is not easy. Your eyes have to adjust to the new reality. He says, this light within you produces only that which is good and true. The light exposes the reality that you and I have been living in caves of darkness, caves of suffering, and caves of evil. He says, take no part in darkness, for true freedom comes in the light. He says, expose the darkness, for others are still chained in the cave, believing that what they see in front of them is reality. I think it's pretty cool how Paul seems to be using the work of Plato here. But I want you to know that Paul is not entirely Platonic. Because he changes some things up a little bit. Now, the Greeks had this understanding. Their focus was on, uh, it was on this idea that liberation came in enlightenment, wisdom, and knowledge. And the movement from darkness to light for Paul wasn't just about a new kind of knowledge. Uh, It wasn't for the early Christians either. It wasn't just centered on liberation or even freedom. Rather, that which is real and that which is good and that which is true and that which is culminated on this very day is set firmly in this one single event. God raised Jesus from the dead as an act of love. Now, I think if we asked Paul, He might say that he used Plato's allegory to connect his original readers to the greatest of realities, 
the God raised Jesus from the dead, I think he would say, oh, man, after you read it, oh, can you, can't you see it? I've been trying to play, make it as plain as I can. I've been using children's stories, stories that even children knew. This, this whole thing, this, this thing that you're living in is about something that is far greater, something that is far deeper. This passage is about one thing. It is about resurrection. On Friday, we remembered that Jesus went into the cave. He went into our cave, our tombs, our caves of death and delusionment, of disorientation, and he led the way by breaking free from the cave. Slavery, imprisonment, and entrapment, these things are no longer our reality, but instead, he burst into the cave with light and with life, and he was resurrected. He took victory over death, and therefore took victory over our horrible lives in the darkness. This is why he says, wake up, sleepers, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. It's a weird thing because then you have these do's and don'ts as a part of this passage. And they seem binding at first. How could we talk about this? But Paul reminds us of the true reality. The same way that Plato and Socrates spoke of. All of this is folly. But in reality, somewhere down the line, the resurrection of Jesus invites us into something real. It invites us into something new. His is the way of sacrifice. His is the way of otherliness. His is the new way of hospitality. His is the way of being a good neighbor. His is the way of love. We gather in this place today because light, And life has burst into the dark caves where we reside. And love raised him from the dead. And then love drew him out of the cave that he went into. And with this new reality, ours is now a new hope that we too might be raised from the dead. And we might be able to be lifted out of our caves as well. I want to let you know something. Jesus, when he was resurrected from the dead, it wasn't that he was just resuscitated. It wasn't just that somebody came and gave him CPR and his heart began to to beat again. And it wasn't even that his spirit was resurrected from the dead. Jesus' resurrection was a bodily resurrection. And that makes all the difference. A bodily resurrection says that God has put limits on death. And it says that to the world that God has not given up on you. Why? Because this world and everything in it matters to God. As you've heard time and time again already today, God is about redeeming and restoring the world. God is about making old things new. God is about raising dead things to life. And it's like Paul says, death, abuse, greed, violence. These are the things of the old world. They are not right and they've never been right because those things belong to death. And resurrection says that death does not belong. You and I are made for resurrection. You and I, resurrection is knit within us. And this is how I know. We participate in resurrection kinds of things every day. Every time there's an act of compassion, 
or an act of hospitality, or, or, or an unseen good deed, every merciful move, every work of art or piece of music that celebrates the just, the merciful, the good, the honest, the true, are evidences of resurrection. Evidences that God is going about the business of remaking and restoring the world, of making all things new. We are longing to come out of these caves and be brought into the beautiful light. And you do this every day. That's why you spend hours in the garden planting flowers and making the shrubs look just perfect. Why would you do this? You long for resurrection. That's why some of you get a high decorating a room, making it look perfect. Why would you do this? You long for resurrection. The landscaper, the bodybuilder, the poet, the movie maker, the dancer, the singer, the journalist, the painter, the mechanic, the author, the home builder, the parent, the teacher, the architect, the church planner. We, when we do these things, are practicing the resurrection that we long for. We are being made alive when we make old things new. And all through this passage, Paul says, You, my friends, were once in darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. This is resurrection. So live as children of the light. Resurrection. Don't participate in darkness, but expose it. Resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes us forever. And Paul says that if we would be united with him in his death, and we are united with him there in that cave, we will certainly also be united with him in the resurrection. This is why Paul goes through this weird list that he does. It's because within us, we have this need for new life. And while everything about the world of the cave glorifies and promises the new and the new life and the sexy and in the powerful and in the immediate and the wealthy, this is folly. These are just but shadows on the walls, my friends. Be welcomed into a new reality. Be welcomed into light. Be welcomed into resurrection. When the world seems dark, when we've got nothing left, when we are at the end, when the flashes on the walls of our caves grow dim, we hear these great words, He is not here, the cave is empty. Resurrection. Resurrection, my friends, is offered to the educated, the illiterate, the average, the person who hates her job, the boss that makes that job miserable. It's offered to the one who are in a marriage crisis. It's offered to the young, the old, the addict, the cancer-laden, and the doctor who can't do anything about that cancer. It's offered to the professional, and it's offered to the amateur. It's offered to the tired and the stressed out and the weary, the meek, the bored, the hungry, the fearful, and the one who is overly confident. And today, it is offered to you. Now, you might still think it's Lent. And you might come into this place and you say, but Chris, my cave is so deep. I have no hope. My friends, that's Lent talking. And this is Easter. And resurrection is not something that happens when we have a lot of hope, or we have a little hope, or we have a sliver of hope. Resurrection happens when we have no hope. My favorite 
theologian N.T. Wright says, Easter is about the wild delight of God's creative power. We ought to shout hallelujahs instead of murmuring them. We should give every man, woman, cat, the dog, child, and mouse in the place a candle to hold. We should have a real bonfire and we should splash water about as we renew our baptism vows. Cake for breakfast? Absolutely. This is Easter. It is Resurrection Day. This is our greatest hour. But I'll remind you, Easter is not just an hour and it is not just a day. It's an entire season, a long and good season. And without Easter, we are still stuck in our sins. We are still in the cave. But resurrection has changed everything and we should celebrate. This is our greatest day. Resurrection means that God is healing the world, not abandoning it. Resurrection means that there is a final coming together of all things in heaven and earth. Resurrection means that God is claiming space and then makes space for others. It means that God is redeeming time and years, weeks, days. It means that God is redeeming matter itself, the very physical stuff of life. In resurrection, death is the great boundary of life in the resu- in resurrection death is the great boundary of life but in resurrection in the resurrection of Jesus Christ God is the great boundary of death death limits life but on Easter God limits death Frederick Buechner said this resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing And Pope John Paul II said, do not leave yourselves to despair. We are an Easter people and hallelujah is our song. So, Paul says, I want you to practice resurrection. Be participants in resurrection. And the question for us is this, how do we practice resurrection? Well, we come to this wonderful table, and we participate in this wonderful ritual that helps remind us of this wonderful story of resurrection. For hundreds of years, God's people were in slavery. They were in caves. And it was the Passover meal that reminded them of God's deliverance from their Egyptian tyranny, and and he was their new salvation. And way back in the day, he gave them a gift of new life. And for over a thousand years, the people celebrated and they worshipped, knowing that the angel of death had passed over them and given them a new life. But it wasn't just a story they told. It was a story that they relived as they participated in this feast. And they participated in this dramatic reenactment of their salvation, where they would eat and they would drink. And they would remember They've been resurrected. Jesus, in the same way, called his disciples around a table. It was a feast. And as a sacrifice, he ate and he drank death. He went into the cave. And then he experienced resurrection. And this supper is the center of everything that holds everything together. It holds everything together in worship, and here in worship we are reminded about what is going on around us for real, and we hear these words, sleeper, wake up, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The world is alive with God. Look, listen, lift up your hearts, and come and participate in what God has provided for you. This table is a declaration. 
that Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. I'd like to invite you to this table. This being our main act of worship here in the new 8th Street Church. And I want to remind you, I'm going to invite my friends who are helping me serve. But I want to remind you that at dinner on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body and it is broken for you. Every time you eat of it and you eat of it together, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood. And whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. We know then that just a few days later, The Christ who was crucified was raised to new life and was resurrected and revealed himself to people like you and me. I want to remind you that this is Jesus' table. This is not a Nazarene table. And all who are able and all who can and all who are open to the work of God in Christ are welcome to this table. So I want you to come down the aisle with your hands cupped, this center aisle, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes, of, comes from God. We have said for two years that we do not take communion. We receive it because it is a gift. I want to let you know that we want no barriers. Anyone who would like to come be a, receive this gift is welcome. So our bread is gluten-free and our wine is non-alcoholic. Listen to what my friends have to say to you. Hear what they have to say. Let them put the bread into your hands, then dip the bread into the cup and eat it. And know that resurrection is offered to you. If for any reason you cannot come down our aisle or you need assistance, just wave at Justin, wherever he might be. There he is right there. Just wave at him and he will come and he will serve you. But when you are ready, my friends, I invite you to come.